0: Revelation 17, we're speaking this morning about, beginning to speak about Babylon, also called the great whore. Babylon has a lot of of, of different ideas surrounding her, surrounding it. But what we will find is that there are the fingerprints of Babylon, regardless of how we identify it or who we identify it as or all of the different elements of Babylon as a whole. What we will find is that the marks of Babylon, of its characteristics, as we study them over the next three weeks, will be all over the place in history. And that should give us perspective on how we ought to act in regard to today. And that's really what I want us to see. Again, as we talk through all of these things, there's so much about the timing and the who's and the what's and the where's that we don't know, that we can't know. Uh, We make inferences. We can feel pretty confident about certain things because of what we know and, and comparing Scripture with Scripture. And all of that is good and all of that is valid. But what all of this is intended to do is to drive the way we live today is to change the way we live today, is to instill in our today something more zealous for the Lord. So here we are, Revelation 17, and we are at the time of the end. We've read general overviews of the events leading up to the final world rebellion, a series of events that have conspired to bring the population of this world to the valleys of Jezreel and Jehoshaphat, And they have done so, being brought together for judgment. Several chapters ago in Revelation 14, we read for the first time a decree about a city called Babylon. This was the second of three angels that made this decree that Babylon had fallen. The first of those three angels, we recall, was proclaiming the everlasting gospel. The Bible says that an angel went throughout all the world proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Then there was a a second angel, which talked about Babylon. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then the third angel was proclaiming eternal judgment to all of those who had accepted or who would accept the mark of the beast. That if they accept the mark of the beast, then there is an eternal judgment that, that they are, that they have accepted as well. Now, that second angel, the angel in between, just to to refresh our memory, said this in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. The Bible says, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all the nations drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So we see this statement that, that Babylon is fallen. And the reason why, because she has made the nations drunk with the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And we said that we'd come to it later, and now we are at that point where we are learning about this Babylon. What is this Babylon that is fallen? It is interesting that Babylon would come up here, the great city. Babylon is a city that historically has not been around for quite some time. Uh, We read Babylon plays a very important role in the Old Testament, As they are the means through which God judges the nation of Israel, sends them into 70 years of captivity. That captivity begins in Babylon, after which Babylon is overthrown by the Medo-Persian empire. And then eventually over time, uh, Babylon is slowly destroyed. Uh, The remnants of Babylon are still around. There are still um, small uh, uh, settlements in Babylon and uh, using even the remnants of the city as a portion of the, uh, the settlements. Saddam Hussein was, was, really, uh, Babylon was very important to Sa- Saddam Hussein when he was around and uh, he wanted to rebuild Babylon. He sought to to uh, Babylon being effectively near where Baghdad is today. He wanted to use uh, Babylon as kind of a nationalistic uh, um, uh, culture or center of their culture and of their heritage there in Iraq to formulate a nationalistic pride around uh, this former city that he had mentioned wanting to rebuild at various times and and. Uh, and such during his uh, reign, so Babylon is not a city that is unknown to us. We understand that that uh, the. The hanging gardens of Babylon, were one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world. So we have all of this about Babylon, but Babylon is not around today. And that Babylon comes up at the end of the age here in Revelation uh, should perk our ears a little bit and cause us to, to wonder a few things about what this Babylon is. Is it literal Babylon? Is it um, something different? Is it an institution? Is it a city? What, what is going on here? And over the next several weeks, we'll seek to answer these questions. And we see that the reason for the destruction of Babylon that is here at this time is that she made those nations drink of the wine of her fornication. There is, the idea of a fornic- her fornication here is a spiritual idea, the idea of spiritual unfaithfulness that Babylon was what, what had this spiritual perversion and unfaithfulness and apostasy and caused the nations of the world to drink the wine of the wrath of this spiritual Apostasy to reject the gospel. And in this, we find a unique link, right? We have the everlasting gospel preached by the first angel, the doom on Babylon is the second angel, and the the doom on those that take the mark of the beast as the third angel. And we see this line from the gospel to the mark of the beast that, in a manner of speaking, passes through the fornication of Babylon. So we're going to consider today the spiritual judgment on Babylon. In Revelation 18, there's an economic judgment on Babylon, and it gives us more insight into the character of the city. And then, I don't know if it'll be next week or the week after, I might flip-flop those messages, we'll have to see yet. But at some point, we're also going to spend some time talking about history and culture and connecting the dots and seeing if we can have some sort of a comfortable idea about what or whom Babylon is. Verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 17, the Bible says this, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgments of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication so immediately we see a connection between uh, revelation chapter 17 verse 2 and revelation 14:18 where we find that babylon was this great city that made the nations drunk with the wine of her fornication. And then here in Revelation 17, 2, we find that this great whore, this woman that sits on a beast, is the one who is making the world drunk with the wine of her fornication. Here we see the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Excuse me, we'll get to the beast in just a moment. Uh, That's verse 3. So John is told to follow this angel, and he sees this woman, and the Bible says that this woman is sitting on many waters. We'll see within this chapter, particularly in verse 15, remember we've talked about the waters and the earth, and the waters perhaps being the Gentile nations, we'll see the strongest link to that in Revelation chapter 17 that we've seen thus far. So this whore is said to be sitting on many waters waters, and said to be a woman with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And because the leaders of the nation have committed fornication, the inhabitants have followed into that destruction, and she has thus led the nations into destruction. Now it's important to understand that we are not speaking of a literal woman of ill repute here. This is not a woman who makes her rounds around the globe, committing fornication with all the kings of the earth and leading kings into sin. We'll see as we continue that the great whore is actually an institution. And between this week and next week, uh, I'm going to make the case that it's an institution of political, economic, and religious uh, values. That, that it has a political component, an economic component, a religious component, and that they merge together to create an institution uh, through which... Um, There is influence. And I believe that we can trace that through history. There is, as I've mentioned, a lot of disagreement about this. Some believe that Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 are entirely separate. That Revelation 17 is speaking of a spiritual Babylon that is destroyed. And Revelation 18 is speaking of an economic Babylon that's destroyed. And that they are two separate things. We'll, We'll have to see how much we get through as far as discussing all of this. Uh, how much we're going to prove and how much we're just going to leave, uh, uh, let lie and and let people make up their own decision, because at the end of the day, um, all we're doing is piecing some things together to to formulate a general opinion that gives us a perspective anyway. Verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of the names of blas- full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and 10 horns. So John is carried away in the spirit to the wilderness and he sees a woman sitting upon a scarlet co- uh, colored beast. Uh, we believe that this woman is the woman of verses 1 and 2, contextually that makes the most sense, that this woman that John sees sitting upon the beast is the same as the woman that was sitting upon the waters just a moment ago. We'll see that that these two Uh, ideas of the woman and the beast continue to merge throughout the chapter, which gives us general confidence that this is the same woman, that this is the the great whore, as we've seen her just far, that is sitting upon this scarlet-colored beast. And the next element that we have here is the beast himself. We receive a description of the beast himself, and this is very important. John says that this beast has seven heads and ten horns. Now, this is certainly not the first time that seven heads and ten horns has come up in a vision in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, we've seen it two other times in the book thus far. The first was in Revelation chapter 12, and this is where the great dragon who wanted to devour the child, that, the man-child that was born of the woman with the 12 stars, uh, uh, a crown of 12 stars, and we identified that as Israel, and the, the man-child who would rule over the whole earth is, is Messiah, and then there was this dragon who the Bible explicitly said in Revelation 12 is the devil, that old serpent Satan, right? And so there is this dragon, and he had seven heads and ten horns. And then in chapter 13, we saw a beast, right? The first of two beasts, and this first beast uh, also had seven heads and ten horns, and we identified him with the man of perdition, or the son of perdition, the man of sin, that we call Antichrist, and so Antichrist, we identified, had seven heads and ten horns. And we also identified, um, the, Satan is having seven heads and ten horns. And at the time, we said that these seven heads represent the idea of um, complete power over the nations. And the ten horns represent the specific kings as we, we correlate that back to Daniel chapter 8. We're going to see a deeper, get deeper insight, particularly into the seven heads, that it's not just speaking of uh, total Um, ruling over the particular uh, age of Antichrist, but that there is a generational idea to these seven heads that will become very important to us understanding the nature of Babylon, right? And we know that the woman is Babylon, or we've connected it thus far through Revelation 14, verse 8, that they both Cause the nations to drink the wine of the, fornic- uh, the, wine of the wrath of, the forni- of their fornication, and we'll see that connection be made even closer as we continue. So we have these links, right? And, and if we link the 10 horns back to Daniel chapter 8, then we know that Antichrist is the 11th horn. So we need to see if all of this stuff is going to come together. And the next natural question then is this. Is this beast upon whom the woman is sitting. Is this Antichrist? Is this the beast of Revelation 13? Or is this a separate beast altogether that simply has the same connection? Well, we'll answer that as best we can as we continue. But first, let's talk more about the woman herself. The Bible says in verses four and five, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So we find a description of this woman to be, uh, in a word, lavish. Uh, She is clothed in purple and scarlet. These were the colors of kings. These are the colors of royalty. These would be the colors that were found in, uh, the, the, in the, the houses of the Caesars. She was decked in gold and precious stones and pearls, expensive items for the wealthy. In her hand was a golden cup, a golden cup showing uh, th- those that drank from golden cups were those that were wealthy, those that, that, that were lavish only in places of tremendous wealth. And in the cup of gold, uh, arrayed with fine jewels and clothed in lavish garment, in the cup of gold, the Bible says, she was drinking abominations in the filthiness of her fornications. She was drinking up her sin. It shows that she is doing this joyfully. She is doing this purposefully. She is doing this willingly, that this is intentional, that this is what she does, that this is the essence of her character. Now, the fact that we know this woman to be only a symbol for something greater is important because we would understand this woman to represent uh, something, a city, a city an institution, whatever it might be. And in an institutional sense, fornication speaks not of sexual impurity specifically, but as we continue here, of spiritual impurity. When we talk about this woman committing fornication with the kings of the earth and causing the the people of the nations of the earth to to follow after her fornication, we are, are speaking in a spiritual sense here. This is spiritual fornication. This is spiritual unfaithfulness. This is a perversion of spiritual truth, of doctrinal truth. This is what we're looking at here. If this was a physical woman, then we could keep things in the physical. But when we are seeing in a vision, in an institutional sense, in a broader sense, in in the sense that on her is written this name, Babylon the Great, that she is the great city. And that she is the great whore, we understand here that God is looking at a city or an institution and he's saying this institution is unfaithful. If you go back to the Old Testament and you hear God talk about Israel as a uh, willing woman, as a whore, as as, as an unfaithful woman, what is he speaking of? He's speaking of them having wandered from spiritual truth. He's speaking of them going after the gods of other nations, worshiping false gods, spiritual abomination, right? Spiritual uncleanness. And this is the idea that I believe is most consistent to impose upon this great whore that her fornications and that the wrath that is coming from her fornications is not as much explicitly a physical thing, although that would obviously be a part of it, but that this is spiritual sin. This is spiritual unfaithfulness that we are dealing with here. To this end, we might see uh, see this woman as representing something within a false system of religion, whether it's just a portion of it or whether it's the whole thing, whether it's just the city or whether it's an institution. She, uh, a part of this, and the defining aspect of this, at least as it relates to God, is that she is spiritually adulterous. She is spiritually apostate. And remember, we want to know who is this mystery Babylon? Who is this? What what is this city? What what are we talking about here? Whatever it is, it's defined by spiritual unfaithfulness. Great spiritual unfaithfulness. Apostasy. Heretical ideas. And so upon the forehead of this woman, which would be her identification, is this. Three names. Mystery. Mystery. Second, Babylon the Great. Third, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The names which are given, which God gives to this woman. And the first of these names indicates that this is a mystery, that her identification is a mystery. Now, we've talked about mystery several times in the scriptures, right? What is a mystery? A mystery is something that is revealed at, at a later date or at a certain time that had not previously been revealed before. It is a spiritually significant truth that must be revealed not through deduction or, or not, not through uh, experience, but through the teachings of the Spirit of God, through those that have spiritual discernment, and it is something that, has, that God has not seen fit to reveal until a certain time. Now, the question is, do we have enough information at this point in history to know what Mystery Babylon is? Or is Mystery Babylon yet a mystery to us, but will be revealed to another generation in time? Again, that's another valid question. And if we come to the, to, to the idea that Mystery Babylon may not be for, for us to understand the fullest of the mystery today, uh, then we don't need to exercise ourselves too heavily on it until such time as the Lord sees fit to reveal it to the generation of his choice. So mystery is the first name given to this woman. And here we find that the significance of the city Babylon uh, comes up heavily, mystery Babylon the Great, right? And once again, this links it to Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, the Great. And in Revelation 14, verse 8, it's the Great City. Now, we can trace Babylon all the way back through, of course, Babylon and the prophets, all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11 and the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is really the beginning of the legacy of Babylon. And this is, again, very important to us as we might seek to identify what is this Babylon? Why is Babylon? Babylon comes up all the way at the beginning in Genesis 10 and 11, right after the flood. And here Babylon is coming up right at the end in Revelation 17 and 18. And then we kind of see Babylon pretty important right in the middle as well. Why in the middle? Why there? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Why Babylon again? These are things that we'll study particularly as we get into next week. So Babylon is called here the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The mother represents the origin of something. My mother represents my origin. I began in my mother. I came from her. She is my beginning. That Babylon is the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth tells us that Babylon, both historically and ideologically, is the source of spiritual perversion. The root of the tree of spiritual apostasy and evil as we see it today. Now we know that there was tremendous spiritual apostasy and evil prior to the flood, right? We know that. Uh, That's why the flood had to happen. And yet, as we trace spiritual apostasy to as it relates today, whatever their apostasy and evil was prior to the flood, as we trace the concepts and the evils and the paganism and the false teachings that 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 are yet around today, there's nothing new under the sun. We can trace it all the way back to the spiritual apostasy of Babel, to the spiritual apostasy of Babel and the man unto whom Babel was the beginning of his kingdom, a man named. Nimrod. We'll talk about that again uh, either next week or the week after. So Babel, Babylon, becomes the root of the tree of spiritual apostasy and evil. The philosophies and the thoughts and the ideologies and the rebellions that undergird the spiritual wickedness, even that we see today, had its start, as far as the realm of men and empires are concerned, at Babel. And this woman represents the latter days manifestation of the evils and the perversions which had their roots way back then. She is an institution, a city, a something that is the ideological offspring of Babylon. Of Babel, To that end, again, we'll study that more and see if we can pinpoint some things next week. One more verse considering the woman that sits upon the beast. Verse 6, the Bible says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So the final characteristic of this mother of harlots, of the great whore that rides the beast, the final characteristic, other than spiritual apostasy, is persecution of those who are not in spiritual apostasy. Laid at the feet of the mother of harlots, this great city of Babylon is that it has been the primary source of persecution and martyrdom of the followers of Jesus and the followers of the true and living God throughout History that she is drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Generally speaking, particularly in the book of the Revelation, when you see the word saints, it, it has a, a connotation of Old Testament and then the martyrs of Jesus, of course, being more New Testament. That's just a general template, and it's not a, a hard and fast rule, but that idea does oftentimes play itself out in study. So within this vision, John says he sees this woman drunken with the blood of those who have followed the Lord and followed Jesus. And the Bible says that John wondered with great admiration. The idea of admiration here is not as we often think of admiration. If I say I admire someone, generally that means I think well of them. That I am impressed with them, that I look up to them, but the idea of admiration as a whole is not necessarily always a positive emotion. It rather simply speaks of great wonder uh, that that you are overwhelmed with with a sense uh, of the emotional impact that you're looking at something. So in this sense, John is looking at this harlot, and he is overwhelmed with with impact of, of the emotion of seeing. This woman, And maybe it's because of the nature of the vision that she is lavish and that she is, is is drinking the wine of the fornication of God's wrath and that she is drunk with the blood of the saints. And this is perhaps extremely overwhelming to John um, to see this. Uh, he is, of course, on the Isle of Patmos at this time for his faith, um, having been put there by the emperor, probably Domitian. And he's there for that reason. Many of... His fellow apostles have already been martyred. Uh, the the blood of the saints is being shed uh, in the church, and here he sees the mother of harlots, and perhaps that is why he wonders with great admiration. So this is the vision that he sees. He sees this woman. He sees her identity. He uh, sees her uh, sitting upon great waters and riding a beast that's colored scarlet that has seven heads and ten horns. Now we need to try to sort it out. And thank God he gives us some identifications here as we continue, lest we just be terribly confused. Verse 7, the Bible says, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her which hath the seven heads and ten horns. So the angel says, why are you wondering? I'll tell you what's going on here. I'll tell you what you have seen. The mystery of the woman, the mystery of the beast, which carries her, the one that has seven heads and ten horns. Verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So it's time to draw some links. And the angel says that the beast which John saw is the beast which was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now, this is not the first time we've heard of a beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, is it? We read of such a beast in Romans 11, uh, Romans, Revelation 11, in the context of the two witnesses who ministered for 42 months. Remember, the Bible says these two witnesses will be witnesses of the Lord and for 42 months they'll minister and fire will come out of their mouths if any try to harm them and they will be untouchable until in Revelation chapter 11, there is a beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit who kills them. And the whole world rejoices when the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit kills these two witnesses. Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, that is the two witnesses, and shall overcome them and kill them. So these two witnesses, they finish their testimony, they finish their 42 months, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit kills them. And I mentioned back in, in that time that some believe the beast Out of the bottomless pit is the angel of the bottomless pit, and there's reasons why some people believe that, Uh, but it does seem as though they're probably two separate ideas here, and I also mentioned that some believe that the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit is, in fact, Antichrist. And I said, we'd substantiate that later. Well, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit here is one that has seven heads and ten horns, and this is the beast of Revelation 17, the same one that ascends out of the bottomless pit. And so we're starting to see some links here if we believe that this beast of Revelation chapter 17 is, in fact, Antichrist. We continue uh, here in verse 8. The Bible says, um, my apologies here, I'm getting a little lost in my notes. Uh, so, so the Bible says that this beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit uh, is also the beast that was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now this puts some things into perspective for us. From a practical standpoint, the description here sounds very much like the description of the first beast in Revelation 13, which we have identified as Antichrist. That first beast in Revelation 13 had seven heads and ten horns. That first beast in Revelation chapter 13 was full of blasphemies. And that first beast in Revelation chapter 13 had a mortal wound which was healed, and the whole world wondered after the beast whose mortal wound was healed. And the question we must answer then is this. When John says that this beast was and is not and shall ascend, is John speaking in his day or is he speaking in the time of the revelation of Jesus Christ? And the reason why this is really going to come up is because in the next verses we're going to find that those seven heads that this beast has do not just represent future kings, they represent past kings as well. And if this is the case, then when we read in John's day that this beast was and is not, but shall ascend, are we talking about is the mortal wound that he, because remember when we said the mortal wound, it could have been physical or it may have been some institution or whatever the case may be, is the mortal wound that people marvel at, is it a physical thing? Where this physical man that we know will be there, the man of sin, the son of perdition, will be hurt and then he'll be resurrected? Or are we talking about him resurrecting something that was long ago that will be brought back in, a new institution or, or whatever the case may be? We don't really know. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's a dual fulfillment where there is a physical healing and a simultaneous restoring of some institution that was long ago put out of business but that will once again be restored when the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit. All of these things are possible. And this is why revelation is kind of difficult, right? Because we don't have the historical context to be able to say what this is. And when people stand up and they say, it must be this and it must be that, I would just caution you. Because there are so many different things that this could be. And every year as we get more historical context and as we see more things happening, it's possible that we can, become, we, can, we can get closer to pinpointing some answers on these things. But we don't fully know, except to say that it does seem from Revelation 17 that if this is speaking of the same beast that was and is not and shall ascend and, and that this is the mor- if, if this is the mortal wound that Revelation 13 is speaking of, that, that there will be this recovery and that the whole world will marvel after, then it's quite possibly something that was before John's day that is not at the time of John, but then that will be reinstituted at the the end. I hope that makes sense. So all of these questions are bouncing around in our head. And I admit to you that I don't have all the answers on this, but I do have a strong degree of confidence that we are looking at the same beast. I feel as though we are looking that the beast of Revelation 17 is the beast of Revelation 13, and that this is Antichrist. And whether it's all about the man, or whether it's also about perhaps an institution uh, that he represents, or a city that he represents, or a philosophy that he represents, these are things that uh, are still up for debate. However, I do believe that this is the same beast, that we can connect him to Antichrist, who came on the scene when he destroyed the two witnesses, exalted himself at the abomination of desolation uh, there at the midpoint of the, of the 70th week of Daniel. This thought would be bolstered by the fact that this beast is said to go into perdition. And this is indeed one of the names for the 11th horn, one of the names for Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, he is called the Son of... Of perdition. We also know that all those whose names are not written in the book of life will take the mark of the beast and worship the beast, aligning with the statement here that they will wonder at the beast, their wonder and admiration, very similar in language to Revelation 13, as this beast was and is not, but again shall be. He was and is not and yet is. Continuing, in verse 9 and 10, the Bible says, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a, uh, a short space. So the scriptures call the reader to have a mind of wisdom. This is similar to what Jesus says He who hath an ear, let him hear, right? This is similar to what we saw in Revelation 2 and 3. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That idea of perk up, listen, exercise spiritual discernment and prayerful thought here. It's the same idea. Who has the mind of wisdom? Understand these things. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and another is not yet come and then we'll see in verse 11 that that the beast is the 11th or excuse me is the 8th king. So the angel explains that the seven heads that this beast has seven heads 10 horns, right? The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sits. Now many take this to be literal that there are that that she will sit on the city of seven mountains and There are, if you you Google this, there are no less than a hundred and something cities that are called the city on seven hills. So there are a lot of cities that it would be candidates for being the city on seven hills if indeed this woman is sitting on a city of seven hills. Most people have identified this with Rome because Rome has characteristically been called the city on seven hills. And um, so characteristically, many people have identified the seven mountains as the seven hills of Rome, which, of course, leads them to the idea that, that the Catholic Church is the, the woman that rides the beast, and there are entire books on that. And I, uh, in many ways, I don't have an argument with that, because the Catholic Church definitely reflects Babylon. Um, I'll give you some perspective on that and believe that, that we go much beyond that. In our interpretation of it uh, in the next couple of weeks, Uh, Rome has characteristically been called the City of Seven Hills. Combine this with the historic spiritual apostasy of the Roman Catholic Church and the fact that they are responsible probably for more martyrdoms of followers of Jesus Christ than any other institution in history. And there's good reasons to direct these things. However, I believe, as I mentioned, that Rome is not, that, that the Roman Catholic Church is not. The whole, I think she is a part of the whole. And so we're seeing this. But notice more importantly than just this seven hills idea. Does it matter? Right? It's definitive, right? City of seven hills, that's Rome. Well, no, because when you read here and it says the seven heads are seven mountains, and then it says, and there are seven kings on those seven mountains, right? There are seven kings, five of which have fallen, and one is, is and the other is not yet come. So we're not actually talking about literal mountains here. We're talking about kingdoms and kings, which kind of puts the whole city of seven hills thing in a different light and, and maybe even puts it to rest a little bit, that we have to find a city on seven hills for this woman to, to, to be from, because... We're not talking just about seven hills here. We're talking about seven mountains who, who are representative of seven kings. And the angel says that five of those kings have already fallen. At the time that John is writing this, five of the seven kings had already fallen. One king is currently, and the other is not yet to come and will only be there for a little while, for, will only continue for a short space. Now, we come to the same question again. Are we talking about the kings who uh, would come during the 70th week of Daniel? Are these seven kings, five of which have have already happened within the course of the 70th week, one of which is at the point that John is seeing in the vision, and one which shall be at the end of his vision, at the end of the revelation? Well, that seems very unlikely, doesn't it? Because, I mean, at this point, the end has come. Babylon has fallen, Antichrist has come, all of these things have already happened. Antichrist, we'll see in verse 11, is called the eighth beast, and so if he's the eighth beast, and the seventh beast hasn't come, and yet the abomination of desolation has already happened, that means Antichrist has already come, then our whole whole thing gets all muddied. So we can't just be talking about seven kings within the scope of the 70th week of Daniel, which means most likely that this idea of the seven kings, five of which have already come, one which is, and one which is to come for a short space, is talking in the scope of when John is writing this. So as he's writing in his day with Emperor Domitian on the throne, five of these kings have already passed. One is right now there, and there's one more to come for a short space. And that leads to all sorts of other questions, right, uh, as to what this brings. It doesn't bring us any closer to understanding what this means, but at least gives us context in, in, uh, as, as far as what's going on here. This does also cast a question, another question mark on the beast, right, that was and is not and shall be. If in verses 9 and 10 the context of this was and is and shall be is John's day, then is that the same context for the beast? Is it a beast that the, the, the beast was and is not in John's day and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, right? I hope that you're following this. I know it can get a little bit confusing, but I hope that you're, you're kind of drawing this, this mental line with me. So these seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And these mountains are representative of seven kings or seven kingdoms. Five of those kingdoms are done, or kings are done, mountains are done. One king is, one mountain is, one kingdom is, and one will, is yet to come and only will get a short space of time. This can be very muddy, interpretively. Some state that there were five emperors leading up to the time of John's writing during the reign of, uh, and he's writing most likely during the reign of Domitian. But in fact, there were many more than five emperors. So they were, they, they're trying to put the whole thing within the realm of just the Roman Empire and say, well, there are five emperors up to Domitian, and then there's Domitian, and then there would be one more after that. But that's very difficult to do historically. It's very difficult to try to shoehorn just the Roman Empire in. Some state that uh, it's simply speaking of emperors that will fall into a spiritual apostasy of the Babylonian system. And this would make more sense, although still somewhat difficult to identify directly. So if we're talking about a larger perspective here, right? If we're talking about seven kingdoms that will come before Antichrist's kingdom, he'll be the eighth. Well, number one, how does we have to fit that into the the vision, the visions of Daniel, right? The vision of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, which had four empires, and the vision of the beasts of Daniel in Daniel uh, seven and eight, which had four empires. And so we had four empires given there. We had Babylon as the head of gold. We had the Medo-Persian Empire as the chest and arms of silver. We had the uh, Grecian Empire as the loins of brass, and then we have the Roman Empire as the legs of iron, and then the feet were uh, of of iron mixed with clay, and then each of the individual toes are a separation of either iron or clay, right? So there's these 10 toes, and some are weak, and some are strong. So we have these four empires, five if we include the a, a difference with the clay at the end there. But we have these four empires, and just four. If we go historically before Nebuchadnezzar, if we add those four empires to the mix, right? Rome and Medo-Persia and Babylon and Greece, and we say that those are four of the seven. Well, Rome was the one that is, so we, we, right? The Rome is the one that John is writing in, so he would, that would be the sixth empire. So there's still five empires prior to Rome that we'd be playing with. And of those five empires prior to Rome, we have Greece, we have Medo-Persia, and we have Babylon, so we'd need two more empires. That would be empires that would have risen and fallen in the vein of Babylon. And we could certainly talk about the Assyrian Empire, we could certainly talk about the Egyptian Empire, but those are only two, and that would fill up all of our five, which is why interpretively all of this gets a little bit muddy. Greece, Medo-Persia, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, the five who have come and gone. But then what about Babel itself? Would that be included in this? Perhaps it's best um, just to kind of understand what he's saying rather than try to put all the pieces together just yet at our time in history. But what we can know is that Antichrist, for all of his uniqueness, will actually be the pinnacle of a system that has been in place for a long time. A philosophy that has dominated world empires for a long time. And it's quite possible that as we look at these seven kings, these seven mountains, five of which are past, one of which was at the time of John, and one of which was to come for a short period of time, that we are looking at the whole of history dominated by empires that reflect the Babylonian system. Remember, these seven kings, the woman is sitting on these seven hills, right? The woman is sitting on these seven hills. These seven hills are that upon which the woman has sat for the entirety of history. These, and this is where we begin to see the possibility of emerging of a political, economic, and religious system. This woman represents a religious system, but this religious system has ridden on these seven hills five of which had gone, one of which was in the time of John, and one of which would to come. She had ridden on those seven hills for the whole of her existence. She had ridden a state system, perhaps the merging of a church-state system, the power of the state enforcing the church, the power of the church enforcing the state, both of them ruling political, economic, and religious values. Do you see how we might be able to start to conjure up this idea? This woman is on these hills. These hills represent kings. Those kings have come. Those kings are. Those kings are going to come. She's sitting on top of those. She is the mother of harlots. She is the one that is drunk with the blood of the saints and of the followers and martyrs of Jesus Christ. She is the one that has caused kings to commit fornication with her and has caused the nations of the world to commit fornication. Fornication, a spiritual apostasy riding on this beast, this beast having these seven heads. These seven heads are the same seven heads on the dragon. The dragon has compelled this philosophy. It's the same philosophy that we find in the beast. These seven heads being these seven kings. Those are the seven mountains. I hope that makes a little bit of sense to you. We continue. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. All right, so here we find that the beast is the eighth of these kings. So we have seven kings, and there's one, the the seventh king is uh, the king that is yet to come and only has a small bit of time. Within my interpretive stance, I see it this way. There were five kings, there were five empires that that used this Babylonian philosophy, this church-state hybrid system prior to the time of John's writing in Rome. And then there would be Rome. And that Roman time will continue until perhaps at the very end there will be a last-ditch attempt at a Babylonian system. And that attempt then will be usurped and overshadowed by the eighth, who is Antichrist. The Bible says that he is of the seven, that he will be of the seven, that he will be like those other kings. He will follow that same philosophy. However, what we're going to find is that though he is of the other seven... In other words, he shares the same philosophy that has always been of these kings and this system and this, this, this control and this ideology. Uh, we also know that, that those loyal to this beast are going to destroy the woman. They're going to destroy this religious system. So he is the eighth. The beast is the eighth. He whom we might call Antichrist. The eighth in this line of kings and kingdoms. And that gives us deeper understanding of what these seven heads are that have been on the beast and have been on the dragon. We have said earlier that this shows dominance over the world and its kings, which is certainly the case, but it also reflects a measure of precedent that Satan has been working in the kingdoms of this world from the beginning and that Antichrist represents the sum total of the world's rebellion and the rebellious empires of the world so that the heads are the sum total of the empire since Babel. All right, let's talk about the horns. The horns are a bit more clear, less of a mystery to us than the heads. We've seen the horns all the way back to Daniel. We've spoken of them, these 10 horns as representing 10 kings. So we read in verse 12, and the 10 horns which thou sawest are 10 kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings, one hour with the beast. Okay, so now we have these ten horns, and we know that these ten horns arise at the end of the... the either at the toes of the image, right, or at the end of the age of that fourth kingdom, which we've identified as the kingdom of Rome or the Western World Empire. These ten kings arise, and as we know from Daniel chapter 8, then an eleventh horn arises that plucks out three of the ten horns, right, three of these ten kings. And, And the Bible says that these kings have not yet received a kingdom. Once again, are we talking about this time or are we talking about the time of the end, the 70th week? We have remained in our context in the time of John's writing. And so I believe we should keep it there. So at the time of John's writing, the Bible says there will be ten more kings. These are ten kings that have not yet received a kingdom. These are ten kingdoms that did not exist in John's day that are going to arise with Antichrist for a short period of time. That these ten kings are going to, to accompany Antichrist in his rise around this 70th week of Daniel. And, of course, we know from Daniel that eventually he will tear up three of those ten horns, uh, somehow destroy or overcome those kings in his rise to power. So let me attempt to put this all together in a uh, a semi-coherent way through a timeline here. So what we find, the angel tells us that the seven heads were seven mountains, which are seven kings. But we can be fairly confident that these represent not just Mountains are kings, but kingdoms. Five of these existed prior to John, previous to John's day. The sixth was in existence at the time of John's writing, and the seventh would exist for a very short time afterward. Then there would be an eighth, right? And the beast is the eighth, that is, of the seven. So he is like the other seven kings, but he is an eighth king. And accompanying the rise of this beast will be ten horns 10 kings, and then we know from Daniel 8 that three of those 10 horns will be torn out with the rise of the 11th horn. And that's what we see. This is how it seems to lay out scripturally. We continue in verses 13 and 14. And I saw three, excuse me, Uh, These had one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. That would be the ten horns. These shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. They that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So speaking of these ten horns, these ten kings, the Bible says they will have a unified mind. They will have come together as ten kings, ten kingdoms to lend all of their power, their wealth, their influence of their kingdoms and of their regions into supporting the beast in his rise to power. To that end, they will throw themselves into one of the distinctive priorities of the beast, namely to make war against Jehovah. But the lamb will overcome them. Indeed, the lamb must overcome them because he's the lamb. He is the Lord Jesus. We've already read the end and he wins. He's the king of kings. And the Bible says those that are with the Lamb, they will overcome as well, because they are the called. They are the chosen. They are the faithful. So we have this distinction once again made between those that are for the Lamb and those that are against the Lamb. And as we're reading all of this, what's happening on the earth? What have men been doing as the gospel went forth from the angel that preached the everlasting gospel, the first of those three angels, as the two witnesses proclaimed the gospel to the world? Well, they have been blaspheming God on the earth. They have worshipped the beast. But not all. Not they who are called and chosen and faithful. We continue in our interpretation. Verse 15, the Bible says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, remember the woman sat upon the waters? The water which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So here in verse 15, we have the strongest link yet between the prophetic picture of the seas and the waters being the Gentile worlds. The angel says that the waters which John saw, where the horse sat, where the beast was, represent peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In chapter 13, the first beast, the Bible says, came out of the sea, whereas the second beast came from the land. The angel that held the little book in Revelation 10 stood with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land with his little book. If we combine all of the imagery, it is reasonable as a course of sound interpretation to say that the waters do in fact represent the Gentile worlds. But, but all is not peachy in the world at the end. We know, of course, about the eleventh horn, the man of sin, the son of perdition, plucking up three of those ten horns, showing us that even though these ten kings had exercised their will toward the beast, yet toward this eleventh horn, this eleventh horn plucks up three of them. But what we find is that there's also a major conflict between the woman who rides the beast and sits upon the seven heads, which are seven mountains, which are seven kings, and these ten horns, these ten kings that shall arise. So follow this with me. The woman is Babylon, the great whore, which represents something, a city, an apostate system, something of the sort. Religious spiritual system that sits upon a political economic system in order to further its power. And has been doing this since well before John's day. Five kings before John's day, right? Five empires before John's day. And she has convinced the world to blaspheme God, to pursue the doctrines of devils, to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, to wander from the truths of God's word. She will ride on a beast, indicating that she will also use the power of of this false system in Antichrist's day to propel her rise and enforce her dogmas. But for all of this power and influence that she would seem to wield, things end up collapsing. And we read of that in verses 16 and 17. The Bible says, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled." If you think about these hybrid church-state-political-economic systems, if you think about these throughout history, whether we're going all the way back to Egypt, where the pharaoh said that he was God, right? And so he wielded his power as God over the people, economically, politically, religiously. Or if we uh, look at the days of Rome, where the emperor said he was God, and so he wielded his power as God, economically, religiously, or politically. Or we look at the Roman Catholic Church, Where they said that they stood for God and so they wielded their power economically, politically, and religiously in those years. As we look at all of these systems, one of the things that these systems demand is fealty of kings, right? That they are above that if they are not the king, they are above the kings. That they are the king of kings, that the one who is that that since God rules above kings, that this system is above any. One man. Well, these ten kings are going to see a problem, it would seem, with the idea that the beast has to pledge some sort of fealty to the woman. She has ridden, sat upon the last seven mountains, and now the eighth mountain has arisen. The eighth beast, or the eighth king, who is the beast, has come, and it would seem logical to think that this woman is going to intend to sit on him like she sat on every other hill. And these kings are going to say, we want him to have absolute power. And so though he is of these other kings, these ten horns will hate the whore and in an in a ironic sense of God's judgment upon the woman herself, will cause these ten kings who have utmost fealty and loyalty to the beast to destroy the woman, to destroy Babylon, to destroy the woman that sat upon the beast. The beast doesn't need her anymore. They want to give their fealty not to this woman, but to the beast and the beast alone. And next week we'll learn more of this demise. A demise which the nations and the merchants will lament because they made great money off of this system. But which will accomplish the judgment of God as we head toward the end. When we finish in verse 18... And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So we finish with a final statement about the great whore, that she is the great city, that would be Babylon, and that this great city until destroyed reigns over the kings of the earth. All the way back, well before John's day, if we interpret the way we're interpreting again. If, if you're sitting here saying, Pastor, you don't know what you're talking about, all of this is... I, I'm fine with that. I'm actually, I'm actually comfortable with that, but I'm reading the Bible and I'm, I'm taking it at its word and I'm trying to put it all together and this is how, this is how I've put it together in, in, as best I can with a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation. There are a lot of other interpretations that play out and I get that um, and I understand that and, and that's okay. It really is okay as far as this stuff is concerned because we just don't know. So at this point, there are a couple of things left to do in regard to this city. First, we need to read about its downfall and glean some final lessons about the character of this system, which will not only be religious, but as we'll see next week, commercial, economic, political as well. Then we're going to spend a week, and I don't know if I'm going to flip flop these yet, uh, considering mystery Babylon as it relates to possible identities, tracing this through history, seeing where we might stand today as it relates to this sort of a system. Is it Rome, the city which functioned in much this way through the corrupt influence of the Roman Catholic Church for nearly a thousand years of history? Is it actually Babylon? Will Babylon be rebuilt in Iraq around that area of Baghdad? Is it Jerusalem, which is also another city on a hill, which in Revelation chapter 11 is called spiritual Sodom and Egypt? Those are some pretty harsh terms for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is called spiritual Sodom and in Egypt in, in Revelation chapter 11 at that time in history. Is it somewhere else? Is it somewhere in the United States? New York is the center uh, the current financial capital of the world, being that when we read in Revelation 18 of the tremendous economic collapse that will take place, are we talking about New York? All of these are theories that have been posed as to what city Mystery Babylon might be. So we'll come at that. We'll ask some questions. We'll, uh, we'll bring up some ideas. I'll come to a general conclusion uh, which you may or may not disagree with, and then we'll smile and move on with our day. But for this week, we need to apply. A lot of academics today, a lot of stuff, a lot of putting pieces together, a lot of this and that. We've studied the character of this woman, which represents some of the, the, the sort of religious institution, the, the religious spiritual apostasy that we can see around us. Next week, we'll have a more uh, more, uh, natural opportunity to speak of the marks of spiritual apostasy and to compel you unto spiritual obedience. I'm going to leave that for next week. For this week, though, I'd like to just take a deep breath and remember the simple virtues and blessings of following Christ. What we see of this woman that rides this beast is the wine of the fornication Uh, of the wrath of her fornication. We see this woman who has has delighted in spiritual apostasy and adultery. And sometimes the best way to understand the complexity of something is to simply put it into contrast with simplicity. Sometimes the best way to understand the evil of something is to just contrast it with virtue. Sometimes when you've been crawling in the muck and the mud of The spiritual fornication, as we study this woman, it's just kind of nice to bathe in the warmth of righteousness and virtue. And so, if you'll indulge me this morning, I just want to read a few simple words that Christ gave in regard to his kingdom and allow them to minister to our hearts this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, the Bible says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under a foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If we know anything about this woman that rides the beast, if we know anything about her identity, it's that it's the opposite of this. It's that as we reflect upon who God is and what he has called us to be, she represents everything that that is not. And so as we seek to identify her and as we look into all of the ins and outs of what is going on in these chapters, it's it's very interesting and it's helpful, but let us remember that what we are looking at is the exact opposite of what we are to be. And that lends us to the question, what are we to be? We're to be this. We're to be the salt of the earth. We're to be the light of the world. We're to live within the blessings of the character of Christ's kingdom. And next week, as we'll see, we are to come out from this other system. We are called to keep ourselves pure from her and to be separate. Let's be that today.